0: This is hell Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus This is hell And on today's best of 2023 episode We are reminding you of just how virulent Just how severe, harmful, and even deadly capitalism can be By sharing our February 16th conversation With a couple of people who had been on the show in the past But separately Claire Provost and Matt Kennard, who had joined forces and co-authored the book Silent Coup, How Co- Corporations Overthrew Democracy, as in past tense And I, as I mentioned when uh, introducing Claire and Matt way back in uh, February The only difference between the deadliness of the virus and capitalism Is, we are absolutely certain, 100% positive, how capitalism kills people as well as destroys the environment which is through profit-seeking at all costs, no matter the impact on the people or the planet. We also know that the main perpetrators in, of these crimes against humanity are corporations. And The bigger they are, the greater danger they pose. But when those corporations influence the legal system in order to craft business-friendly laws and then work hand-in-hand with elected representatives to fine-tune regulations to best serve profits and not people, Within that kind of corporatocracy is when the private sector really turns on the bottom line abuse. The worst part, however, is when that is all done in relative secrecy without anyone knowing to circumvent pesky obstacles like oversight, transparency, accountability, and responsibility. Thanks to Korg for suggesting we play our conversation with Claire and Matt. And despite what I may have said earlier on air this month, Our talk with Claire and Matt is the interview that was the second most listened to online this year. Producing is Chris Coolfan. Chris, how are you? How was your weekend? Yeah, it was fantastic, fantastic. Saturday was a beautiful day. Uh, Can
1: you turn uh, down the music just a little bit? (laughs) Oh, sorry about that. That's all right, go ahead. Uh, No, Saturday was a really nice day, actually. We went door to door uh, for Bring Chicago Home, so uh, it's going to be on the ballot in March. So basically, if uh, if somebody sells a property over a million dollars, then one uh, percent I think they got like a tax hike of one percent, and that money goes to uh, uh, sheltering the homeless. And so we were going door to door promoting that uh, this Saturday. This was sort of around the Avondale neighborhood by Logan Square. We were doing it around there. So it was a, it was, a, it was a, I mean, the day was crappy, but it was a nice some nice door to door conversations, some unique ones as well. Especially the one woman who tells me, "Well, I want to be a millionaire one day, and I don't want to be
0: taxed." So I was like, that, I, I wish you well, but, you know, I don't know. You know, they sell lottery tickets right in the corner. That's ridiculous. There's a few places sell lottery tickets, so, yeah. That's ridiculous. It disturbs me so much how wealthiest nation in the world, wealthiest nation in the history of the world, has a homelessness problem. Makes absolutely no sense. And the fact that people think that the economy is ever doing well when there's homelessness going on is just amazing to me. Outside of that, all I could think about was what smart devices were on in my home, because as Variety reported on Friday, it's been a long-held suspicion by many people that smartphones and smart speakers are listening in on their private conversations for various reasons. Now, one company, Atlanta-based Cox Media Group, has revealed that, yes, your devices are listening to you. Indeed, CMG touted its ability to, quote, identify relevant conversations via smartphones smart tvs and other devices using ai to let local businesses target ads to these people a page on the cmg local solutions site which has since been pulled down stated it's true your devices are listening to you with active listening cmg can now use voice data to target your advertising to the exact people you are looking for business insider explained, Cox Media Group recently gave advertisers an overview of a new technology it calls active listening. CMG claimed that its technology can use microphone data from devices like smartphones and tablets, specifically analyzing pre-purchase conversations. The since-deleted uh, blog post also mentions using AI to determine when the phrases heard from smart devices could be relevant to advertisers. Fast Company reported, according to a November 28th document written by Cox's Vice President of Digital Strategy Yes, our phones are listening to us And CMG has tech capabilities To use to your business advantage The now removed post Has been archived by 404 Media It claims that it is quote Legal for phones and devices To listen to you And uh, for third parties to collect that data Because customers agree to phone listening Via the terms of services Whenever they purchase A new phone The use of smart assistants, in particular, means that our devices have to always be listening. The post continues. The original story at 404-media.co added a marketing team within media giant Cox Media Group claims it has the capability to listen to ambient conversations of consumers through embedded microphones in smartphones, smart TVs, and other devices to gather data and use it to target ads, according to a new review of Cox Media Group marketing materials by 404 Media and details from a pitch given to an outside marketing professional. Called active listening, CMG claims the capability can identify potential customers based on casual conversations in real time. It is not immediately clear if the capability CMG is advertising and claims works is being used on devices in the market today, but the company notes it is a marketing technique fit for the future, available today. 404 Media also found a representative of the company on LinkedIn explicitly asking interested parties to contact them about the product one marketing professional pitched by CMG on the text said a CMG representative explained the prices of the service to them so they already have the pricing put out CMG's website adds or sorry reads what would it mean for your business if you could target potential clients who are actively uh, discussing their need for your services in their day-to-day conversation. No, it's not a Black Mirror episode, it's voice data, and CMG has the capabilities to use it to your business advantage. So, yes, they do have the tech to listen, on our con- and listen in on all of our conversations, what they call ambient conversations and whispers, casual conversations. Is that tech already being used? We don't know. Does our smart device need to be on to listen to our conversations? again don't know but what is certain is we trust technology far too much and my guess is a lot of us trust our smart devices more than we trust each other which is weird because our smart devices are very untrustworthy and are literally spying on us (sighs) but more important than our current state of surveillance which you would think would be unconstitutional chris what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience this week's question from hell is if you had
1: to relive 2023 all over again what would be the thing you would dread living through again the most uh and of course we'd like to thank kriash for suggesting this week's question from hell at the Welcome to the, hell, Welcome to the
0: Hell Hole Facebook group page Yeah, and you should definitely sign up for that The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell As always, wins their choice of This Is Hell merchandise Which you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support You can leave your answer at our Facebook page uh, Facebook.com slash thisishellradio Or post it at our Facebook group page Welcome to the Hell Hole And if you are not a rem- member yet, you should join Or you can tweet it at us via X at this Is hell Radio, Or you can post it in our discord community or if you are a subscriber and you should be you can leave your answer at our patreon page patreon.com this is hell brave enough to be streaming live dumb enough to be goofy stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover this is hell and Chris has this week's hangover cure
1: this week's hangover cure is maple water
0: that sounds good yeah.
1: Delish.com posted an article with the classy headline, 14 foo- 14 foods you should eat when you have a hangover. When you feel like crap, these foods got your back. <laughs> According to writers, Santa, F- Santa Faroki and Alison Arnold, there is another way to replenish electrolytes, maple water, which is the sap from maple trees. It was actually found to be more hydrating than water. Not only is it a natural source of electrolytes, but it's also completely natural and void of added sugars. Lauren Maneker, registered dietitian and nutritionist, is quoted saying, ideally, people would drink maple water before consuming alcohol. As data suggests, drinking it before alcohol can increase the rate at which the alcohol is metabolized. That makes this week's
0: hangover cure, maple water before alcohol. I will take that advice myself. Yeah, I'm going to try that as well. That sounds really good, actually. Coming up, Capitalism is killing democracy And us We'll tell you what happened on last week's bonus Patreon podcast for subscribers at patreon.com Slash hell. We'll share with you the rest of this week's interviews To be featured here on our Best of 2023 series No past inside the present this week With Seb Vupper All new past inside the present segments Return early next year Manufacturing dissent since 1996 This is hell And all of us know capitalism is destructive But It still remains a dissenting point of view Thanks again to Korg For suggesting Today's interview Thanks to everyone who made this interview The second most listened to online in 2023 And now our I'm sorry, May 16th interview With Claire Provost And Matt Kennard.
1: You are here, and this is hell.
0: Prove us wrong. And it's becoming increasingly difficult to prove us wrong, especially now that corporations uh, have basically taken over the world. Maybe you haven't heard, but that's not your fault. Corporations took over secretly, under the radar of everybody, except, of course, the people who purposely and intentionally have done everything they can to undermine democracy and take whatever power the people have and give it to... Unelected corporate leaders Here to help us understand How the hell all this happened Claire Provost and Matt Kennard Are co-authors of Silent Coup How Corporations Overthrew Democracy First, welcome back Claire
2: Thank you Thank you so much for having us again
0: It's great to have you on the show And welcome back to the show Matt Good to be back Always great Always great to have you on the show, Matt. I, uh, we're going to be sharing the first interview that we did with you uh, later this week on Patreon, again, for Irre- Irregular Army, how the U.S. military recruited neo-Nazis, gang members, and criminals to fight the war on terror. And uh, we really appreciate both of you being on. But let's start with you, Claire. You mentioned meeting investigative reporter Gavin McFadden. McFadden, sorry, who uh, covered the Nicaraguan Revolution before moving to London and becoming more recently known for his local support of WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. She was also a fierce advocate for Chelsea Manning. You point out how Gavin wrote that investigative reporting demands a reporter's moral outrage at injustice, incompetence, brutality, and misery. But for many journalists, he cautioned their work is simply a job. Their interest is in lapdog uh, confidences and dining with the powerful. Those who passionately uh, and uh, want to provide a voice for those without one and who fight hypocrisy and exploitation are sadly rare. Gavin fretted about consequences for the public at large, deprived of critical perspectives on the activities of powerful players in our societies so clear back in the 1990s when our show started six months after the signing of the telecommunications act of 1996 there was already a growing concern dating back to the 1980s about the conglomeration corporate conglomeration of the media with the tc act it was the even further commodification and financialization of media that meant cost cutting and the first to be likely cut everybody was speculating at the time and became true, would be the most resource intensive forms of journalism, foreign bureaus and investigative journalism. So Claire, how do you think our lack of access to critical perspectives on our society's powerful players through investigative journalism has affected contemporary domestic politics? How has our lack of knowledge about the powerful uh, and how they operate affected our current state of politics here in the States?
2: Yeah, well, um, thank you for that introduction and for bringing up Gavin as well. Um, the late, great Gavin McFadden was such a uh, tremendous figure um, in our, both Matt and I, our careers, but also in our lives. Um, and uh, the it, to your question, um, uh, I wanted to say two things. One, um, you know, you're really right to bring up some of this history and um, how there People have been warning about corporate takeover of our institutions and creation of new corporate institutions, new, new infrastructure for the extension and exercise of corporate power. People have been warning about this for a long time. Um, and a lot of what we found in our investigations that led to this book um, was is, is, is essentially about these warnings being very prescient and very true. Um, And a lot of what what was warned has come to pass. So from what you mentioned about the corporate concentration of the media and closing space for investigative journalism, as you mentioned, there were concerns and warnings about that as it happened. Um, uh, Similarly, there were concerns and warnings about the construction of new international legal and other systems that enabled corporations to further exercise their power. Uh, the the potential consequences for democracy of these uh trends and, and institutions and infrastructure were forewarned um and that's a really chilling thing you know to 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 see the state we're in right now and that we we kind of knew it knew it was coming as as societies um and you know, for for journalism and for uh, access to information. I mean, it's really essential that every citizen, resident, and voter has an understanding of of where power lies and how decisions are made. Um, And without that understanding, you can get a sense that things don't add up, um, but then start to either reach for conspiracy theories or have hostile actors push you towards conspiracy theories. Um, And so an understanding of where power lies and how it operates I mean this is a very fundamental thing that the media should be providing citizens and democracies um and that and that a lot, to a large extent we've it, it has failed and it hasn't failed only because of these Dynamics within um media and the media industry it's also it's also a problem because uh there are um the, the the systems, for example, of corporate power that we look at in the book, um they are, as you mentioned, shadowy, secretive, um non-transparent, um, uh, they, they not created in 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 um in the interests of democracy. So not created with all of the um the, those attributes and transparency, et cetera um and so you have a combination of anti-democratic systems and a uh, media industry that's not up to task to to um interrogate those and the consequence for for individuals going about their daily lives is a, a lack of understanding and some sort of confusion and an, uh, and um a uh, vulnerability to be manipulated by conspiracy theories
0: and those concerns and warnings were you know dismissed as left wing and anti Absolutely. and anti-capitalist as well so matt how was this coup able to be kept secret does it have to do with the disappearance of things like investigative journalism did the corporate conglomeration of the media and its changing focus from the press performing a public service to be a check against unchecked power, to some degree being a guardian or at least an advocate for democracy, was the market's impact on journalism creating an environment that is accommodating to a silent coup by global corporate power overthrowing democracy was this just a fertile environment because of the telecommunications act of 1996 because of deregulation within or i should say re-regulation within the media was this just a fertile environment for this to happen or do you think this was all part of the some larger plan
3: uh, uh my my take is that it's the latter so first <clears throat> firstly like, this corporate coup goes back way further than the 90s. And even the Second World War, in fact, I think that if you were going to start it somewhere, you'd start it in 16th century England, not far from where I'm sitting now in London, where the kind of uh, modern corporation as we know it was was invented uh, in its modern form. And that was when the, the first joint stock company was given a Royal Charter in the UK. And that allowed for tradable shares in companies um and and kind of unleashed the corporate form uh on the road to where it is now there were plenty of other legislative and uh judicial decisions which created the corporation that we know now but this is a this is a battle that has been fought by the corporate form against the state and against the people uh for four over 400 years and uh, it's uh, where I think that where we sit now in 2023 is that coup has been pretty much completed um, it, it, in, the, in, the, in the 16th century. And then in the 17th, it was the East India Company was this flagship company that uh, everyone knew about. It, it, contr- it, had a, it was given a charter by, the, by uh, Queen Elizabeth the I to, that gave it the, the, a monopoly on trading for most the majority, the majority of the globe. This was one company. It grew into a huge, uh, monstrous uh, empire, uh, which ruled India. Uh, had in India uh, had a um, an army which was three times the size of the British army, um, and, uh, and 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 ruled uh, in in a really obscene and oppressive way until the Indian Mutiny of eighteen fifty seven, and then it was shut down, and the Queen and Queen Victoria became the Empress of India, but that so so this battle has been fought for, uh, for for centuries in the 19th century was really when uh, it, it became completely unleashed from the state because you stopped needing a charter from the, the crown or parliament to create a corporation uh they enacted what was called limited liability so investors would not have all their assets vulnerable to um uh to being taken if if the company failed it was only the invested money that they could lose Various different things changed that unleashed the corporation. And then what you see after the Second World War is really the birth of the multinational. I mean, the multinational existed before, but in the aftermath of the Second World War, uh, the Bretton Woods institutions, so the IMF and World Bank, and then a couple of years later, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs was really a system which was set up by the, the British and the Americans, primarily the Americans, but John Maynard Keynes was Debating was negotiating with Harry Dexter White, who was representing the Americans at Bretton Woods in 1944, and this system was about creating uh, a corporate friendly harmonized global market that would allow corporations to to go into new markets and spread capitalism, because obviously this was at the the beginning of the Cold War as well, and the general agreement on trade and tariffs was was about. um, uh, uh, Enforcing free trade around the world so getting rid of tariffs. Uh, and other uh, obstacles to free trade, um, which obviously for multinationals uh, allowed them to, to 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 enter new markets in a much easier way. And we focus on, and, and this also coincided with um, uh, the for the crumbling of former empires after the Second World War. So the British Empire fell, or other European empires, in terms of having garrisons of troops in a country and basically having a satrap ruler that. Did what he was, to- he was told by, by the uh, the imperial power. That, that kind of was crumbling, that system. So what happened was these investors, these corporations that had interests all over the world in the poor world needed to create a system which could operate above the heads of um, rebellious uh, peoples and liberation leaders who were coming into power and newly independent states. And that's what happens. And kind of we start the book... With in that period, in the fifties and sixties, basically when the independence uh, uh, was really picking up, and country after country was becoming independent, they set up these systems that enshrined their rights uh, and created what Thomas Friedman called a golden straitjacket. You know, his his argument was that it was good for the poor of the world, but obviously our argument is the opposite. But what it meant was that it was it, it, it it they wanted to create a system where it was impossible for leaders to move uh in the interests of their people against corporate power and they won that was the that's the, that's the thing that there was very it, it was done uh very secretively and it was done in a way that basically bypassed um uh, any kind of democratic system or any kind of uh accountability from the, the global population so there's there's two i'll just finish with this there's two institutions which we really focus on heavily in the book one is um, the Investor State Dispute Settlement System, ISDS, which was set up in 1966. The, the world, there's, a, there's a branch of the World Bank called ICSID, the International Centre for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, um, that was set up in 1966. And it was explicit about wanting to create a system whereby multinationals had recourse to a supranational venue to take countries to court if they enacted policies that these corporations didn't like. So if they uh, uh, um, nationalised uh, uh, an industry and took a, and, and uh, expropriated the assets of a corporation or even things like denied them a mine, uh, an environmental permit to mine or raised the minimum wage, there's, there's no restrictions on what it could be. If they can argue that it impacts their investor rights and their contractual obligations, then they can sue the government. That was set up in 1966. The other one was the International Finance Corporation, which is the private sector lending arm of the World Bank. And that was set up in 1956. So you can see, and it was quite conscious, you know, that this was about enforcing corporate rule around the world. And barely anyone covered it at the time. Barely anyone even knows about ICSID now, which is incredible. um, And because it's a shadow legal system, which is one of the most important and potent ways that corporate power is enforced around the world. Because not only are countries susceptible to being sued by multinational corporations for enacting sovereign policies in the interests of their populations, that's the ones that get to court. The, what, the, the, the more uh, sort of insidious aspect of it is that there is a huge amount of regulatory and policy making chill around the world because governments are scared to enforce policies or to enact policies which 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 will hurt corporations' profits because they don't want to get taken to these courts and sued for sometimes billions of dollars. There's a case against Honduras now, which is a very poor country in Central America. There's a there's a case uh, from a company uh, which is for eight, uh, 11 billion dollars against Honduras. They're taking them to to court for not uh, for not letting them build a, a special economic zone in their con- in in Honduras. So uh, this, it, it, but barely anyone knows about it. Um, and this and that, how this, I, I don't think it's just the failings of the media. I think that the whole system is set up to enforce corporate rule. And that means that the governments are not representing people, they're representing the corporations. Uh, and that's an important part because the governments aren't telling their people about these systems, even though they're in, infringing on their sovereignty because they're working for the corporations. That's how we've got to a situation now where it's really is a conceptual error to think of the state in the West, but also in the developing world as separate to the corporation. They are now one and the same. And the state uh, is much is much more acting in the interest of the corporation than it is in, uh, in the interest of its population. And I'll just finish with this one of the most Profound takeaways I had from the reporting experience that me and Claire had uh, to, to produce the book, which was over many years and we went to 25 countries on five continents, so we saw a real cross section of the global population, really. And we saw uh, loads of struggles against these systems that we were covering when I was interviewing um, Peasants in Colombia or Tanzania who were getting their land taken or getting uh, 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 threatened by corporations who had hired uh, paramilitaries to to kill trade unionists or activists against um, uh, resource projects or whatever it was, I'd always ask them, what is the government doing for you um, to protect you from the corporation who is doing this? And every single time they say the government doesn't work for us, it works for the corporation. And that is a that was a kind of uh, a realisation a I had that not not only is the the state isn't weakened in terms of its uh, sort of nominal power it's still there but it's working not for the people it's working for the corporation um, and that is a really really scary situation to be in because the, the 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 structures that we that I've described they've got so big and so powerful and so global that it's impossible for any state uh, to go up against it. And sorry, I will finish with this, I promise, because I keep saying I'll finish, but I'm not finishing. <laughs> but there, are, there are a couple of leaders that have come up against this system and tried to push back, mainly in Latin America. So one we look at in the book is, is Bolivia under Eva Morales, who <laughs> was elected in 2005 in Bolivia uh, and had a really radical anti-corporate um, policies that involved nationalization and also renegotiating contracts which had basically just allowed multinational corporations to loot the country for 500 years um and it was quite interesting it was a, it was another way of understanding how these systems work when you look at someone trying to extricate themselves from them because uh, he was one of a few leaders in latin America that tried to withdraw from ib that branch of the world bank where these cases are heard and then you find out well actually it's not that easy to do that there's what they call sunset clauses where they you you might you might say you you leave but they that that doesn't actually happen for 10 or 20 years later you by 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 the contractual obligations which means by that time there's probably another government in power that maybe doesn't have the 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 desire to get rid of them so you realize it's a real straitjacket Um, and then obviously as well, if you go up against these corporations, your credit lines are pulled because most of the credit, um, you need for investment or, or whatever it is, is coming from the Bretton Woods institutions. So you're, you're kind of stuck in this debt trap. Um, Evo Morales, particularly in Bolivia was a model that, that they were, did it really successfully and ended up being praised by the world bank and IMF for their poverty reduction programs and their growth. They had huge growth levels, but, um, yeah it's a it's a it's a long long centuries long that's how we need to understand it and it's a centuries-long silent coup that has kind of reached the new month and i think that democracy as uh, as we understand it doesn't exist and that is mainly because power is located in uh, the private sphere now um and has colonized every single part of our government but also other parts of society culture um uh, education health in, in the uk the nhs is being sold off now to corporations so yeah, it's not a good. It's not a very optimistic picture.
0: No, and uh, post-colonialism, there was no real post-colonialism. It seems like the neo-colonialism that followed post uh, that followed World War Two was actually just colonialism privatized. And if we don't know about the stories that you are pointing toward, like the uh, case with the Honduran special economic zone, that would be that's for right now eleven billion dollars. That would be absolutely economically devastating to the country of Honduras, which would likely lead to Hondurans trying to leave Honduras and heading for possibly the United States border. But these kinds of impacts on immigration policy, say, uh, through corporate control, are not ever brought up within the media. So, Claire, you write how you and uh, Matt looked into the international aid and development system that you'd both wanted to dig into from the start, learning how it has helped corporations to expand or build them out when they've struggled. So, Claire, from your and Matt's research, who is the international aid and development system as currently constructed assisting? Who is it meant to benefit? Who does benefit? Because when we think of aid and development, we think of assisting the poor. In aid, Is aid and development not helping the poor, but helping the already wealthy? Because I think that would completely change the conversation around aid and development. Yeah,
2: so the... The aid and development um world is uh not completely homogenous. And um there there are there are certainly and it should be said, certainly some good projects and some very well meaning people in that sector. Um and uh it's not that everyone goes into the sector wanting to expand corporate power around the world, but what we what we found in the book is i guess two things one you start from today and you look at what's happening today and you see um around the world how uh, aid and development finance have have and are enabling uh, multinational companies to break into new markets to deal with dissenting populations to smooth over try to smooth over relationships um uh, uh with people who don't like their expansion um uh, helping them um uh expand regardless uh, uh, all, all sorts of things so so um, if you start from today you see you, you see that picture if you go back in time you see that that was always the intent. Um, so before the International Finance uh, uh, Corporation that Matt mentioned that branch of the World Bank, um, before that was set up in the 50s that's a, a what's called a development finance institution um, under with a poverty reduction mandate officially, uh, before that was set up, uh, the U.K. set up their Colonial Development Corporation. Um, and so that, that in, in this case, it's, it, you see a bit of Washington following London, which I think is also really interesting when you think about like global power dynamics. Uh, people around the world point to the U.S. still, like now and generations past, as being a, a extremely unaccountable, extraordinarily powerful force. Um, expanding corporate power, but in in the aid and development um, sector, you really see it quite clearly that um, it begins as a colonial project under colonialism. While colonialism is still in place, um, development poverty reduction uh, programs are set up um, that are also intended to bring colonial companies benefits. Um, but you start seeing this this uh, use of development and and uh, well-being, Um, as a propaganda tool uh, to support the the growth of corporate interests. That happens under colonialism already. And then when colonialism officially ends, quote-unquote officially ends, um, the Colonial Development Corporation doesn't close. Um, It just gets a new name. It becomes the Commonwealth Development Corporation. Then the the International Finance Corporation opens, and then others open. Um, And... The, these are very big parts of the aid and development system that are not what you think of when you think of aid. When you think of aid, what you are think of usually is what both the right and the left tell you, um, that it is effectively a transfer of money from rich to poor, like it's a redistributive system. And um, the left likes that and the right does not. Um, But they both traffic in this kind of this myth uh, that aid is a simple transfer of cash. And the reality is that it's just so much more complex. Uh, Most aid does not go direct from rich country to poor country. Um, Most aid goes through a lot of like very complicated chains of different organizations. Some of them are NGOs, but also private contractors that are taking profits um, and then, and then also, in some cases, private companies are the effectively the recipients of aid or beneficiaries of aid. Um, and the that is uh, not something that we're that is explained to us very often. but also, it's not explained very often that that was that was the intent from the beginning, um that this is not an example. what we saw with the aid and development system. It's not really a story of corporate capture of aid and development, as if it was a good system that was recently uh, captured by anti-democratic actors. It was anti-democratic from the beginning.
0: So, Matt, in your opinion, what do you think is what causes this vulnerability of the type of democracy that currently exists to this kind of... not. As Claire was saying, not a corporate takeover, but almost a complicity in this process. What makes our democratic pro- the, the democratic process that we experience today, which is far short of what real democracy is. How much does uh, how, uh, how is that vulnerable to this kind of quote unquote takeover?
3: Well, I think that it's vulnerable basically because the corporations have all the money. Um, and when you have that level of, when you have those kind of resources, you can buy politicians you can penetrate uh, judicial systems, you can create think tanks um, to, to make uh, theories that benefit your interests, uh, common sense in, in inverted commas. So the state, yeah, uh, and as I said, like this is a dynamic that's, te- that's played out over centuries and they've got such a high degree of power now, particularly after the Second World War with the advent of the modern multinational that um, they control the world's resources from oil to food to whatever it is corporations run it all so when you've got that when you talk about that level and they are conscious there are there are classing there are class there there's a there's a corporate class and they do create a world which will carry on enriching themselves um in in quite explicit ways so it's quite interesting for in the states for example in the '60s, there was quite a lot of pushback. So to go back to your de- uh, what uh, democratic society, why can't it push back? There was a lot of um, pushback in the '60s. Uh, uh, it, we're off, we, it's very well known the civil rights movement, um, but what's not talked about as well is that the, 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 the uh, labor was really powerful and really active in the '60s. That was part of that um, tumult that has kind of been erased. But corporations were really worried about it and private interests. And in fact, there was something called the Powell Memorandum, which was written in 1971 by Lewis Powell, who went on to be a Supreme Court judge. And he wrote it to the the Chamber of Commerce and saying, look, corporations are going to, there's there's a crisis. We're going to lose if we don't hit back against this outbreak of democracy. Um, an outbreak of labor power uh, and these uh, essentially the discourse there was a lot of talk he, he talks about how um students and normal people are talking down business, you know, which is way against the american uh uh myth that they like to project so he he said in this memorandum we need to fight back, and you saw that in the in the late sixties and and seventies as well huge amounts of think tanks and different institutions to push out corporate propaganda, to push out corporate-friendly economics were established, from Heritage Foundation to Cato, there's loads of them. And they won that battle because they had the power to put huge amounts of resources in, and it became common sense, and it's limited the political spectrum now. If you look at the, what the Democrats were saying, for example, in the 60s, uh, and even Nixon in the 70s, um, it's way to the left on a lot of economic stuff to what you, to what Democrats say now, even the Republicans, you know, uh, the, the, and, and that's because corporations have had su- ha- basically controlled the discourse because they they fund all these different institutions and they they are basically the interests behind discourse generation, and that goes for the media as well. Obviously, the media, the mass media, is corporate controlled, um, so uh, that's how they've done it. Uh, it's just merely a resource thing and that's why it's hard to fight back and the only way in my opinion you do fight back, the only um, sort of uh, opposite force that can push back on a, on a, on a grand scale is organised labour because um, that has been the major force for progressive change and for um, uh, uh, fighting the corporate power throughout history um and but again corporations are, are are alive to that fact and have worked to completely fracture um organized labor labor uh, uh, member uh, union union memberships way down in the states since the 70s um it's much lower in the private sector than than it is in the public sector because they don't encourage it obviously um so uh it, and and what 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 we get now is kind of a uh, disparate resistance so there's this book. Um, <laughs> there's other like there's small pockets of resistance, but nothing on the scale that would ever worry the corporation, you know. Um, and that's and, and that's also because, sorry, the other the other power center which historically could push back against the corporation, the state, uh, which in theory should, is more powerful than the corporation, but isn't in reality. That has now been co-opted by the corporation, as I mentioned. So when you have all the um, possible uh, forces that can constrain corporate power, co-opted by corporate power, then their control is total. Um, and that is uh, uh, something that uh, the left needs to uh, grapple with because uh, I don't know the answers to it, but I, I, I do think that this is a subject that is kind of um, not given the prominence that it should be by the left i mean uh before september 11th um terrorist attacks there was a there was a in the 90s there was a huge and what was called anti-globalization but really was anti-corporate globalization movement you know and we had the zapatistas in 1994 rising up uh on january 1st on the first day of nafta people were all talking about free trade agreements um which are corporate rights enshrining agreements they were talking about um corporate power and corporate rule, and they were talking about the different systems. The WTO was the ones, what meetings were being, had huge demonstrations like in Seattle. But then that all kind of got um, uh, destroyed by September 11th and the war on terror, and the left's attention got, as it should have done, got turned to trying to stop the war in Iraq. Uh, um, and I think that we need to re-energize and, and re-educate. The left on the fact that this that that corporate coup that they were that we were fighting in the 90s is is not only still here it's, it's worse now and it's getting away with a lot more because no one's really concentrating it on it uh, uh, on the left um and i'll just finish with this i think that it is impossible to learn to understand our society our world if you're not looking at it through the lens of corporate power and also through the lens of the corporate coup that has been happening for 400 years because the balance of forces now are so um tilted towards corporations that all the concepts we understand even on the left think about democracy people use democracy unironically to describe uh britain and, and the united states they're, they're hollow they don't mean anything because whoever we vote for they're gonna then no one's gonna take on the entrenched corporate power which runs our societies and we need to really have a uh, uh, uh an idea and, and some kind of educative program and a theoretical program to try and understand how you combat that when when all the forces or the economic um, military because we also talk about private military um forces are on on one side how do you combat that um so that's an open question i think that it, the first we need to just raise awareness to be
0: honest we are speaking with Claire Provost and Matt Canard, who are co-authors of *Silent Coup: How Corporations Overthrew Democracy*. You can follow uh, Claire on Twitter at Claire Provost. You can find out more about her at her website ClaireProvost.com. And you can follow Matt on Twitter at Matt Canard, and find out more about Declassified UK, where he works, by going to de- at Declassified UK on Twitter and uh, going to their website declassifieduk.org also you can go to uh, where claire also works which is the new nonprofit institute for so- for ju- journalism and social change you can find out more about the institute at theijsc.org and follow them on twitter at the underscore i j s c so claire even you know privatization obviously it leads to it's like a death by a million cuts. It leads to corporate control and the undermining of democracy. Even, Claire, even if the public recognized the silent coup, even if they saw it as a coup and something that should be challenged, because there's no guarantee of that, even if a popular revolution rose up against what the public started viewing as a state of such a like apartheid like inequality, how much can that power? Actually, be challenged. How revolution-proof is the corporate power that you see as behind the silent coup?
2: Oh, it's not revolution-proof. I don't think at all. I think um, I think it's really important to um, uh, and you see this, I think, in the book that these uh, like the international corporate justice system, um, but also international strategies to enable corporate control over resources that, and how they're allocated territories and how they're governed, the use of force, all of these were created by people. You know, hu- humans created these things and humans can uncreate them. Um, I think that is like an important starting point that, you know, the, the, built, the, the world that has been built, it was built by people and it can be unbuilt and rebuilt. Um, however, um, you know, we, I think we, normal people um, often think about today and the near future, and what needs to happen right now and in the near future. And in contrast, the the architects of the international systems and and um infrastructure and strategies that we look at in the book, they were thinking um in generational terms. They weren't thinking necessarily only about what needs to happen today and tomorrow, but also what the world needs to look like in a hundred years and fifty years. Um, we have examples of this in the book from both from you know bankers and lawyers who are at the in the 50s. before the World Bank takes up the idea of this investor state dispute settlement system, um, be, before that gets institutionalized at the bank in the mid 60s, there were attempts to institutionalize it at the UN, via the UN and the OECD didn't work. Um, uh, there, wa- there was enough resistance to stop it um, in in those spaces. Uh, and these ideas were 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 developed over a long period of time. You know, it, it start it it starts even earlier. You know, twenties European capitalist elites start realizing that the ground beneath their feet is shifting. That that independence is coming in the colonies. We need to start preparing for this. Labor movements are rising, in, in more more industrialized countries, we need to start responding to this. So that the the world that we see now and the corp the 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 corporate um, uh, empire that we are living in now which is really it's a really a political project it's not just about money it's also about power and how who makes decisions who decides what goes what doesn't when exceptions are made etc um that that political project took a really long time to like it it, it took time to build um really is a bit of a normative judgment i'm not sure but it, it took time you know it, it took generations to build and I think unbuilding it and, and rebuilding something more fair and, and, and just, it, I think we also need to recognize that's a long term project. Um, it's not something that we can, there is no one that you can elect tomorrow that is going to undo the corporate coup. It's not possible. Um, there's no, there, also because it's a transnational corporate coup, it's a global political project. Um, It needs to be tackled on a transnational level. It's really hard for a single country to extricate themselves from these different mechanisms. Um, And when there have been attempts before uh, uh, that, that had some possibility of succeeding, they, they involve transnational action. So I'm thinking about, for example, you know, before the World Bank sets up this legal system, institutionalizes this legal, legal system, and it was blocked at the OECD and the UN, that was because countries got together and blocked it. Um, at the World Bank, countries, developing countries tried to get together and block it, but then the World Bank adopted a whole range of crafty, anti-democratic methods to prevent that resistance from uniting, um, to prevent information flowing between countries, et cetera, they knew that if resistance united, that would be a problem. So I think that's a clue for us, that resistance the resistance uniting is a problem for this system when it unites across borders. And it also, I think, echoes what Matt was just saying about the alter globalization moment and movements. Those were transnational movements um, and, and transnational campaigns, and there was transnational flow of information about both uh, threats uh, by uh, corporations and corporate systems, but also resistance to them. That information was being spread, and so, and and as Matt mentioned, you know, September 11th happened, but also those movements were under extraordinary attack, um, and you know, people were killed at some of those protests. You know, and I'm thinking like the the G8 protests in Genoa, people were killed, and other examples. People, like that was a that was, but transnational resistance, I think, like has been. Um, Feared by the the, the corporate empire And so I think that's a really big clue A long-term project across borders
0: Matt, you and Claire also write That cases were still pending against Canada Included one filed by the Lone Pine Energy Company From the U.S. after the province of Quebec Introduced a temporary moratorium on fracking under the St. Uh, Lawrence River, pending further environmental studies. Analysis from the Canada Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives suggested that overall, almost two-thirds of foreign investors' claims against Canada had, had involved challenges to environmental or resource management measures, laws, and regulations. So, Matt, more than anything, is this an Anti-environmental movement because I noticed that these all these talks started in around 1964, a little bit earlier, obviously. But uh, when it comes to these uh, decision-making tribunals, they all started around the same time as much of the environmental movement started. So, is are the two connected? Is this a corporate backlash against environmentalism?
3: Yes, but it's bigger than that. I think it's big, It's basically there was a, a, a documentary and book that was um, uh, published in 2003 or four called the corporation. <clears throat> and what it did was it tried to psycho analyze the, co- the corporation and say, if the corporation was a person, because obviously corporate personhood is a, is a concept in, uh, which has been enshrined, um, in, in American law effectively. Um, if it was a person, uh, it can exercise free speech, like through the citizens' united ruling, united ruling and, and other rights. Um, what kind of person would it be? And the book goes through that and, and concludes that it's a uh, it would be a psychopath. And I think that's just an obvious uh, conclusion that anyone would take. You know, a share a, a corporation's interest has to be by law. Um, to um, to uh, uh, maximize profits for shareholders. Uh, when I say by law, there was a famous ruling uh, in I think it was the Michigan Supreme Court in the early twentieth century where the Dodge Brothers took uh, uh, Ford um, to uh, to court because Ford didn't want to give um, all the profits to shareholders. He wanted to do uh, do public works and other things with them. And the court f- said, actually, found in favour of the Dodge Brothers and said, no, your, your role as a CEO is to maximise profits for shareholders. You can't do anything else by law. So that's enshrined in law. And um, so what does that mean in terms of what you're talking about? What, what, if a corporation's only um, objective is to maximise profits for shareholders, the biggest obstacles to doing that are one, are environmental constraints. Uh, i.e. governments telling you or local communities saying you can't do that it's paying uh wait uh proper wages to your workers uh it's having uh a, a big staff um anything that we value in society um a, as a public uh is seen is an obstacle to that corp- is an obstacle to the corporate form so corporations and 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 corporations devastate uh the environment uh, all around the world, uh, because it's what they call, what is called by corporations and in business schools, an externality. Uh, if a corporation and an externality describes a a a, a result of a transaction uh, that, uh, th- that that is not planned but doesn't impact the corporation. So, if a if a if a corporation if a if a corporation is dumping waste in a river, uh, it doesn't have to deal with that uh, because it's a public river. Uh, and that's an externality it doesn't cost the corporation anything but it impacts the society at large so that's an externality and there's externalities all over the world from corporate um, uh, operations and they 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 don't they don't see it as a problem they can't institutionally see it as a problem because if they're not paying for it uh, and it's damaging the environment that's good for them uh, it doesn't matter. They don't want to damage the environment, but if that's part of the the profit-making process, then it, uh, they're not going to complain about it. So, the corporate uh, coup, the corporate empire around the world, is an attack on public space. is an attack on our environment. It's an attack on our labour rights. It's an attack on democracy. It's an attack on everything we should value as a, uh, a as a, a as a democratic people. Essentially. Um, because these, the, the corporate reform uh, as well is tyrannical. It's not like a, a state, it's not like for, in Britain and the US, it's far from a transparent state that we have, but we do have mechanisms that have been won through centuries of struggle that we can hold power to account. For example, we have the Freedom of Information Act, where we can request information about our government and its different bodies and um, what they're doing with our tax money. There's nothing like that to hold corporations to account. Uh, if they're not public, they don't even re- need to release uh, hardly any data. Public co- corporations, you can't send a Freedom of Information Act request, even though a lot of them are getting fat off government contracts. So it's. I would say, yes, it's an attack on the environment. Uh, and you see that all over the place from oil spills to de- uh, destroying um, env- the environment and ecosystems around mine sites, um, just, we saw loads of it when we were traveling the world, actually land grabs where you take, um, land from, um, uh, subsistence farmers and turn it into agribusiness. Um, all, all that kind uh, or seeds seeds is a huge issue in places like India, where the corporations like Cargill and, uh, and others go in and say, well, we don't want you to do uh, We We want you to stop your practices that you've done for a thousand years. Um, it's, it, it doesn't make us enough money. We want you to start buying our seeds. Uh, which which you can only use for one year. They don't. You can't use again by design. So you have to keep buying them. Um, that you just see a disruption of uh, ways of life, um, natural ways of life, and natural ways of doing things all over the world by corporations because they need to make every system, every mechanism into one that maximises profits for themselves. So the environment does not um, uh, does not impinge. And then I'll just finish with this: the obvious most horrific example of this is climate change right um the oil companies Mobil, bp they knew about climate change in the 70s and 80s they knew what it meant they knew that it meant that it could wipe out uh, civilization and it could be the end of our species they've all got grandkids or a lot of them will have and kids but the point is that the corporate form does not allow them to have any morality i'm not on an individual level they might be moral people but in their job inside a corporation, there's no space to operate in a moral way that protects the environment, that even protects human survival. And that's why I think that the corporation is a devilish economic instrument that has got that has gone that is out of control. Um, and the problem is the instrument itself. That we have a society which has a which has a value structure which has been uh, obtained by a, most osmosis by the most powerful um uh, a, a form of organization in that society which is the corporation and we've adopted all their uh uh the the value systems from the corporate uh, from the corporation so uh and that's that's it's, hap- it's, it's happened on such a large and generalized um uh in such a large and generalized way that it's impossible to even see now. Corporations and the value, corporate value system is in, uh, has infested so much of our society that most people don't even see it. Um, and that's the other thing, to go back to your original question about why it's silent. I think that it's part of it is it's such a total system that it, it, it's, it's so assumed. When you're born now, um, you grow up in a society that is so dominated by corporations that you never even problematize that because it's just so total. Like the idea that you would ever go to like a a a what in the States, like if you'd ever go to a hospital and not have to uh pay or uh, a corporation or an insurance company for your for your um for your uh healthcare, like it is so ingrained in us now that corporations have to run everything and have to do everything. That's the only way that efficiency can 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 take hold that um uh yeah, uh yeah, I I, I think that it's a, just to conclude, it's a war on on every civilized part of society.
0: And we do need somebody to point out that it isn't uh being privately run isn't more efficient. It isn't more cost effective, it isn't a better way to run a system. That has not been proven to be the case whatsoever. That argument has completely fallen on its face.
3: It's the opposite. That's the irony, it's the opposite. Like for example in Britain, we're now moving away from the NHS which was is kind of was, was for a long time uh, 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 the greatest pride of Britain you know it was the it was a, it was a really well run uh, well funded um, institution that um, provided healthcare at the at the point of uh, delivery uh, for free to anyone and we're dismantling now now and building a system more like the US which is some of the worst outcomes uh in terms of health results per, uh, per dollar spent or whatever it is in the world uh and uh, and but we're moving that way not because it, but, and it's not because there's been any rational analysis that that's the better way to do it it's because the, the analysis that, that gets prevalence is one that has been uh, that has resources and the one and the corporations are putting tons of money into think tanks and academic institutes and whatever it is that promote this idea that everything has to be run privately and that's the only way to do it efficiently um it's really extremist and actually milton freeman who's kind of the godfather of a lot of neoliberal thinking he would before before the 70s he was like those ideas were seen as extremist they and they are extremist but they became what we, what we call centrism now um and that is that's that that has to be taken on uh head uh uh, head first. And, and like you said, like the, it's a complete lie.
0: We have been speaking with Claire Provost and Matt Kennard. They are co-authors of Silent Coup, How Corporations Overthrew Democracy. And I just want to tell everybody, make sure that they understand, we have only barely dipped our toe in the water here when it comes to the corporate takeover of democracy. This is not just takeover, but overthrow of democracy. This is a very intense and very deep and thick in information book and you should all check it out because this is what people were you know warning about back when the show started in 1996 this is what people were warning about 30 years before that 40 years before that this is exactly what everybody was saying was going to happen and it has. We have one last question for each of you. And as always, it is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Or our audience is going to hate your response. Claire, we'll start with you. So you write from, you and uh, Matt write that from El Salvador to South Africa, where we would go next in our investigations, we hear a variation of the same thing that surely the government officials who signed up to the international investor state legal system didn't know what they were getting into. They couldn't have known that they Countries' independence would be at stake when they ceded power to the system and its treaties and its tribunals. But it was clear in black and white on our tray tables, some did know from the start and make their concerns clear. A block of of developing countries had opposed it to defend their sovereignty. The system was set up despite this. So, Claire, is this system... Now coming back to roost in the United States, is the U.S. domestically experiencing unintended blowback from corporate rule, undermining the sovereignty of developing economies? Is that process now being turned on the American people? And was that the point? Do you think that that turning that system back onto the American people will finally lead to a movement here in the U.S. to challenge that system?
2: Oh, I think that's more than one question. Chuck. I know, it's like 3.
0: I know. I, I started I started riffing there at the end. So I guess that's my bigger my biggest point. Do you think that uh this that the system coming back to roost will finally show the people of the United States that this is a system that needs to be challenged and will?
2: Well, uh I think one can only hope in a, to a certain extent. However, um I I I see where you're going with that and um Okay, let me let me take the first question first. Yes, this yes, the systems that we've looked at in this book have um, come home to roost in the sense that they were uh, primarily set up with the interests of wealthy European countries and the U.S. in mind, and their their corporate uh, interests in mind. Um, and since that setup. Uh, these the systems and strategies that we have looked at in the book uh, really have gone global, and so do affect now all every country in the world. Um, so the U.S. can also be sued over policies uh, at international tribunals by other companies. Um, the U.S. has also entered it fully entered on into the um, raced the bottom of uh, where you have different cities competing and regions competing against each other, giving corporations. Tax breaks in exchange for um, setting up factories and other things in, in, in their areas. Um, again, with huge, like really lo- big time scales, like an anti-democratic time scales attached to these. You know, when you're giving like 30 year tax breaks, um, you're 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 delaying any, effectively trying to delay any possible debate or change of mind on that for decades. So we, so yes, things have come back, are coming home to roost. I think Um, could that lead to the situation self-destructing or more resistance emerging? Potentially, I I think there is a relationship between um, the political, global, corporate political project that we describe in the book and uh, increasing rates of um income and other forms of inequality that we are experiencing on a day-to-day basis and people are are seeing and 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 um rightfully getting upset getting more and more upset about um so the these systems have also enabled US corporations to um dramatically accelerate their their own wealth, their executive pay, etc. And so increasing in income and other inequalities Probably also within the U.S., um, uh, but I, I, I think back to what I said before. I think the the process of destructing, like deconstructing uh, the the systems that have been created to enshrine corporate power around the world, and and building something new. I think that is a long term project. So um, I don't think it, it it is something that we're going to see. Um, disappear or get dismantled tomorrow, but the work to start that dismantling and that disappearance can start today.
0: Yeah, we had a lot of guests on our show maybe twenty, thirty years ago. Who twenty, twenty five years ago, who were saying that you just can't. The problem, one of the problems with the neoliberalism per se, is that it cannot be dismantled. But we have seen where there has been there have been successes against some neoliberal poli- uh, policies and politics around the country. Matt, our question from hell for you is. So has capitalism always been at loggerheads in competition with democracy for control of the state? Will capitalism always be in competition and with the state for control of society? Um,
3: (laughs) That is a big question. Um, I think that There's there's varying degrees on a theoretical level. I don't think you can have um, democracy if you have huge amounts of power, economic power um, in the hands of private interests that are not subject to democratic um, accountability mechanisms. Um, So the corporation, I don't think as a form is conducive to democracy. Having said that, there were times when the corporation was much more constrained by the state, and obviously there is an argument which is made by the right, which is that the corporate form unleashed huge amounts of growth, innovation, um, uh, and economic uh, success. I mean, in in a sense that it, it's it's the form that was behind the rise of America to superpower status. You know, because although Britain dominated the corporate form in, its, uh, in the, the, its modern stage from sort of the 16th century to 19th century, it handed over power to the US at the end of the 19th century. And, and all the biggest companies uh, for the next 78 years were American ones. Um, but there were times during that whole period where they, the, the, the state would take action to restrict their power. And it was very clear who was in control, that a democratic state, um, or maybe not so democratic at certain points, but... In theory, a democratic state could constrain a corporation. But uh, but, but I do think that if you unleash this kind of form from the state, there's only one way it's going to go, and that is that it's going to become a Frankenstein's monster. It's eventually going to get powerful enough that it can eat the state that created it. I don't think there's any way to stop that, um, uh, because the dynamics uh, are that if it's behind all this economic success and they're getting bigger and bigger, they're going to have more and more power to take, to eat away at the state. And that's what's happened. So in theory, I would, I would, I would like, uh, I, I would like, um, industry, um, to be organized around worker based collectives. So I think in, if I was going to have, if someone was going to ask me what I, ha- what I was ideologically, the closest I've ever thought about, Thought that I've got to in terms of what, how I would describe myself is an anar- anarcho-syndicalist, where co- um, pri- where co- industry companies are owned by workers themselves, um, and they and they're organised on democratic principles, whereby <clears throat> decisions are not made by a CEO or a board; they're made by worker collectives um, who are making the products, um, and and I think that that is. Uh, the way that a, a democracy a democratic society would have would run its economic organization i mean it also goes back to that <clears throat> whole marx marxist idea of alienation which is a psychological impact of a corporate run society whereby corporations are run hierarchically and workers uh, at the bottom are treated like dirt and have no input in their in the the big decisions about where the company's going they have no creative role in designing the the company's products or the company's uh, strategies or whatever it is and what that creates is just an alienated class of people who are just essentially robots they go to work they work on a production line whatever it is they work in costa coffee or whatever it is those jobs in themselves are not um, dehumanizing they're not um uh, then they, they don't need to create alienation. Even if you're working in Dunkin' Donuts behind the counter or Costa Coffee, if you have, if you, if, you, if, the, if, Don, if Costa Coffee and Dunkin' Donuts were organized along democratic principles and the people working behind the counter had some holding in the company and had some ownership and had some democratic rights designing that company, that would, that, that creates a whole different psychology because you are, uh, uh, you have agency. So I think that that is the form that I, that, that I would prefer that our uh, economic organization was based on. Um, I, d- I don't know how you get uh, how you get rid of the corporate form now, because the other thing is now we live in a, in a world where the Cold War finished. There is no other model. The Soviet model wasn't one that I was particularly uh, um, uh, fond of either, but, in, but but now you have two, two superpowers right you got the US. and its allies, and you've got China. And China is um, is capitalism on steroids. Like me, and, me and Claire went as part of. Uh, we actually haven't talked about this, so I won't open a can of worms. But we went to um, a special economic zone in China called Shenzhen, which was opened in 1980, which was its first special special economic zone. And these are like areas where, which are just like corporate utopias, where corporations can do whatever they want. Labor laws don't apply. Uh, there's different tax regimes. There's different e- import export uh, regimes um and that was just like uh, a capitalist nightmare um uh, workers had very little rights there were surveillance cameras everywhere um there was uh, uh there was a sense that the work was even more disempowered than in in the west and this is in communist china you know so there is no, at the moment, in terms of like grand forces, uh, superpower forces. There's no alternative to the model that we that we see corporations are running riot. Uh, and but having said that, I'll finish with on a hopeful note because I think it was important what Claire said actually about the um, the fact that this system isn't static and it's not. Um, it, it appears strong and it appears all powerful, but I think it's actually quite fragile. And you see that that you can't, it is vulnerable to well-organized people-based movements. One example that I mentioned earlier is the Zapatistas in 1994. They were explicitly um, uh, launched their uprising on the first, uh, against NAFTA, which was the free trade agreement between the US, Mexico and Canada. Um, and they won. And they didn't even have to, they they, they famously, their, their thing was, they, they their uprising, they had wooden guns. They had guns that were carved out of wood. It was a symbolic thing. So they didn't, no one, no one was, they didn't shoot, There, there was no, no one died, but they won. And I went to Mexico uh, about 10 years ago and went to uh, the Zapatista controlled areas in Chiapas. And they have 13 what are called caracoles, which are like autonomous areas in Chiapas where the state is not allowed by law to go into, the military and state is not allowed to go. And that was won by struggle. Uh, and they are obviously there's no corporations in there as well so and we we did see that everywhere we went there was amazing resistance movements claire talked about el salvador again they were they they they, they through struggle they won they that they, they booted out companies that were that were treating uh, the local communities badly and and destroying the environment they also were the first country ever to ban metallic mining um and and in uh, bolivia uh, Evan Morales' his government uh, and, and his successor now Luis Arce, they've had huge successes in in taking on corporate power and running a successful economy which has brought poverty down massively so it is possible to do it's just that behind the whole corporate system is an enforcement mechanism uh, which ends with the US military you know, or US regime change so that's what you've got to guard against as well um, uh, uh, that there's a whole system that is meant to that is set up to crush people that try and escape the system Um, uh, so we've got a lot of a lot of obstacles but i don't but i I am quite hopeful um but the biggest problem i would say is that people just don't know about this stuff it's not on people's radar people when when i explain isds systems the legal system where corporations can sue states people are just shocked they're like that can't be real that there can't be this system and I'm sort of like yeah and it's it's not only it doesn't only exist it's it's draining money from some of the poorest countries in the world and giving it to the richest corporations every every week you know this is an active and growing uh system um so we need to raise awareness and and raise awareness that I think the corporate power and the corporate coup is the biggest issue of our day in terms of uh, understanding the threats to democracy and the threats to uh, civilized society.
0: It's always surprising and incredibly refreshing that at the end of a conversation like this, our guests say they have hope. It shocks me, but it's just refreshing. We have been speaking with Claire Provost and Matt Kennard, co-authors of Silent Coup, How Corporations Overthrew Democracy. Find out more about Claire at her website, claireprovost.com. Follow her on Twitter at claire provost followed matt on twitter at canard matt thank you so much for both of you being back on the show you know i'm going to annoy you in the future with more interview requests i really appreciate you both being back on the show thank you so much this is an incredibly important book and everybody should read silent coup thanks so much for being on the show
1: manufacturing dissent since 1996 this is hell
0: Staring into the abyss, so you don't have to. This is hell. If you enjoyed our talk with Claire and Matt on the danger capitalism poses to both democracy and the planet, show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast at Patreon.com/slash ThisIsHell, or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell just by visiting ThisIsHell.com and clicking on the word support. On our most recent bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, what was supposed to be a single Patreon monologue became a two-parter on what I learned and hopefully you learned during the last four months of This Is Hell. And it turns out that I learned, and I hope you learned, far more than I realized as this review of the past four months of shows has now become a three-part series and will continue on this week's Patreon. Also on Patreon back in 2009 Listeners chose as one of the, their favorite interviews of the year A conversation from July 18th, 2009 With Jeff Foe, founder and author or Founder and sorry, former president of the Economic Policy Institute Jeff was on to talk about his then just posted article at The Nation Entitled So Far From God, So Close to Wall Street Mexico's Troubles Illustrate the Destructive Effects of NAFTA's Neoliberal Economics Jeff is also the author of the Classic, the global class war How America's bipartisan elite Lost our future And what it will take to win it back Which it sounds like it very much predates By 14 years Exactly what Claire and Mark, Matt were talking about When it comes to the silent coup Of corporations taking over our planet But the only way you can hear all of that Is by subscribing again At patreon.com slash Hell, Chris, what is this week's question from hell And how are our listeners Responding so far This week's question from hell
1: is If you had to relive If you had to relive 2023 all
0: over again What would be the thing you would dread living through again the most. Relive all over again is kind of a tongue twister. Relive all over again. <laughs> it's very difficult to say. And thanks to Criage again for offering this week's question from hell. We outsourced it this week to the folks over at the Welcome to the Hell Hole Facebook page, and we got a lot of great ideas for question questions from hell coming up, like courts, marshal, and attorneys general. So, Chris, how are people are responding?
1: Well, we got a couple of responses. Uh, we have one from the Hell Hole uh, Facebook page, uh, the welcome to the hellhole Facebook page. Uh, the answer from Nick, he, has, he said, All the rapes, torture, murders, mass shootings, and war. Wow. Yeah. I wouldn't want to relive that again either. <laughs> yeah, uh, Ditto on that one as well. And we got two more answers from, uh, from Facebook itself. Uh, Fabio wrote, Almost losing Chuck.
0: Yes. Thank you very much.
1: I got real close That was two years ago But thanks <laughs> And then Eric wrote Um Right now This December But You could have asked me Any month this year And my answer would have been Right now
0: and the <laughs> ascending scale Of awful and terror Would not repeat <laughs> Who's, Who wrote that? Uh, Eric, Eric, thank you very much. That's a really great answer to this week's question from hell. We'll have more of your responses on tomorrow's show. Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question, as always, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell merch they want. You can see all our stuff by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, and our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hell Hole, uh, via X or Twitter, whatever, at This Is Hell Radio. You can post it in our Discord community or at our Patreon page, or you can just email it to me at chuckatthishell.com. But we must have your answers by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin and his weekly Moment of Truth. Chris, what is Jeff talking about again during this week's Moment of Truth? Jeff has an attack of the jollies <laughs> Good time we hear here for that This is Hell has been nominated As best podcast in the Chicago Reader Best of 2023 readers poll And your bitter, blind, broke, Gaptooth radio show host That's me Is nominated as a finalist in the Best radio DJ category Go to chicagoreader.com Slash best right now And under the city life category Vote for This is Hell as best podcast And me, Chuck Mertz As best radio DJ Again, I cannot stress this enough, if we do win, Chicago media is going to be really, really mad. Thank you, everyone, who nominated us in those categories and got us to the finals. Also, you should vote for Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs from us, where we hold our office hours every week. And this week, the This is Hell Holiday Office Party will be happening. Carrie's Lounge also made it as finalists in three different categories at chicagoreader.com slash best go vote for Carrie's as best neighborhood bar best dive bar and best beer garden and I think it's the food and entertainment section under that category again that's chicagoreader.com slash best vote for Carrie's Lounge C-A-R-Y apostrophe S underneath best neighborhood bar Best dive bar, best beer garden. Chris, who are our upcoming guests on this week's show? Our next Best of 2023
1: interview, as chosen by listeners to and staff of This Is Hell, is our conversation with anthropologist Alex Hinton on a Sapiens article, Two
0: Myths Fueling the Conservative Rights' Dangerous Transphobia. We never get hate mail. We never get that many negative responses to anything we post on social media and it's not just because we're being throttled by all the social media platforms generally we don't get much negative uh, response or feedback but we did to that interview because man do libertarians hate people who are transgender who else is what other interview are we going to be playing this week
1: and uh, we wrap up this week's best of 2023 best of 2023 discussion by playing our our July talk with Emmy O'Brien
0: on her book Family abolition, capitalism, and the commun- and the communizing of care. Yeah, that was a really great conversation. Me was fantastic on the show, and uh, that book was on family abolition. And immediately afterwards, I went on my annual holiday, summer holiday, family vacation. So it was a very odd book to be reading right before then. And it wasn't the only conversation we were having on family abolition right before my family vacation and we got some very positive feedback about a monologue i did on patreon concerning that vacation which i'll tell you a little bit more about later this week We hope to see all of you on Wednesday, December 20th. That's this Wednesday, winter solstice eve for the annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party, which will be held during our normally scheduled office hours at Carey's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, beginning around 6 p.m. that evening. Again, that's this Wednesday, December 20th, the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party at Carey's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, uh, happening around 7 or 6 p.m. I should say. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. Thanks to Chris Coolfan for producing. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996.
1: This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller.